Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. My name is Diane Phillips. I am co-chair of the Boston uh, Bar Association Energy and Environmental Environmental Litigation uh, Subcommittee, uh, and I welcome you. Today, we have some really excellent speakers, very experienced on practicing before the Environmental Appeals Board, the EAB. Um, and I hope you will enjoy this program and find it very interesting. Uh, as some of you know, I've been practicing environmental law for uh, around 30 years, and I've only had one proceeding before the EAB. So I'm actually looking forward to this and have some great uh, questions to ask as well. Our first speaker will be Susan Gardner-Kimball, who serves as senior counsel to the EPA's Environmental Appeals Board. Throughout her tenure, she's handled administrative appeals of environmental permitting and enforcement cases that arose under the major environmental laws that EPA administers. We are thrilled to have Susan as the insider expert. She has helped develop also EAB's alternative dispute resolution program and has served as a mediator in several matters. And we're going to hear about those experiences. As part of her, the EAB's international judicial capacity building efforts, she has presented trainings to several, several international delegations as they visit um, DC and as she visits uh, other countries. So welcome, Susan. Next, after Susan, we'll hear from Mike Knapp, who should be familiar to BBA attendees. He is the former co-chair of the Wetlands and Waterways Committee. And many of you know him as the Senior Assistant Regional Counsel at US EPA Region 1, where his practice focuses on Clean Water Act and federal Indian law. And lastly, we'll hear from Fred Andes, who many of you may not know because he is a partner in the Chicago and Washington, D.C. offices of Barnes and Thornburg. But he is a nationwide expert on the Clean Water Act and chairs the firm's water team. In connection with that, he represents many uh, trade associations, municipalities, industries, and is an expert on practicing before the EAB. So, Thanks to, again to all of you for um, participating. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Susan to get us started. Thank you, Diane, and good morning, everyone. I'm just gonna take a moment to share my screen. Uh, and I need to, one moment. Here we go. <laughs> I should have practiced beforehand. Can everyone see that? Yes, okay, great. Okay, so uh, thanks everybody for attending today. Um, I just wanna make a quick disclaimer. This is, there's a, a decent amount of slides in my presentation, but the purpose was to have it be something that you all might be able to refer back to. Diane had explained that um, you'll have access to the presentation as well as the slides in the future. So um, I erred on the side of including more information as opposed to less. Um, I won't be reading the slide, so just wanted to let you know we'll make it through in plenty of time. Um, and I will touch on a couple of things that I think uh, Mike and Fred will go into in more detail, but I just included them um, here, and then you can always refer to their presentations as well. So... Um, here we go, the EAB. Uh, so the board is uh, 
comprised of four members. It's an appellate tribunal established in 1992 by regulation. Um, as you can see the quote from the reg, it was to lend greater authority to the agency's decisions and inspire confidence in the fairness of agency adjudications. Um, prior to 1992 and the board's formation, um, these types of decisions were made by a chief judicial officer, um, but that role was sort of um, ensconced within the agency, and this was an attempt to um, make sure that uh, there was a, a separation between the functions of adjudicating for permitting and enforcement matters. So four judges comprise the EAB. Um, they do sit in panels of three. We're going to talk later about our alternative dispute resolution program um, that we tend to offer to folks who have a matter before us. So that fourth judge um, is sort of always kind of reserved and potentially going to be acting um, as an ADR judge. Um, report They report directly to the deputy chief and the chief of staff. So they're um, have a direct line in the administrator's office. They do rotate the administrative lead. So there is no, um, as opposed to some, some tribunals that are set up where there's a lead judge who that person is sort of the boss. Um, in this case, they just rotate um, who does the administrative matters for the board on an annual basis. Um, and in addition to the judges, um, we have seven Councils, we have an honors clerk who's someone who comes straight from law school in a two-year term position, uh, the clerk of the board, and the administrative professional that helps us all. Um, one other point I wanted to make about the board, uh, the board and its structure is the judges are in career-reserved positions um, of the SES. So those positions are um, to actually defined in the regulations to ensure impartiality or the public's confidence of the impartiality of government. So as opposed to other sort of general senior executive service positions, these uh, EAB judge roles must be filled by someone who is in the career SES. This is just a brief summary of the types of appeals that are heard at the board. Um, again, our, we exercise authority delegated by the administrator. Um, the, the lion's share, I would say, of the appeals that we receive are from administrative law judges uh, and regional judicial officers who are doing administrative enforcement. And then also permitting decisions uh, from EPA regional offices or state, local, or tribal authorities that are acting on EPA's behalf. Um, we do also, in the last seven years, I think we've had two pesticide cancellations and one may be on its way back to us. Um, prior to about 2016, I'm not sure that we had heard one of those before, but they seem to be um, coming up a little more frequently. Other matters that we... Uh, hear of uh, or typically will hear are um, petitions for reimbursement under CERCLA for cleanup costs where uh, one party has come in and done the cleanup and then they'll seek reimbursement from other potentially responsible parties. Um, we also will ratify consent agreements and final orders um, that arise out of EPA headquarters enforcement actions being settled. Uh, some of you may have seen in the trade press last week, we um, the agency is now starting to uh, really focus on 
HFCs and enforcing against people who are importing industrial greenhouse gases um, and, and not meeting their greenhouse gas reporting requirements. So just in 2023, I think the board has ratified three of those consent agreement and final orders relating to um, HFC enforcement actions under the Clean Air Act. And then also, if there is any uh, reason that the Office of Civil Rights uh, can't handle an EEO matter itself, um, a judge and an attorney will um, take that on and then draft that EEO decision as well. Um, so who the parties are, this is just uh, kind of relatively self-explanatory. We do expect uh, accept friend of the court briefs from folks who are not a party to the litigation. Um, again, potentially responsible parties who are um, brought into a reimbursement uh, petition for reimbursement action. And then I did want to note that the board does have uh, sua sponte authority to review both uh, permitting actions and enforcement actions on its own. Um, we, in my recollection, have never done it with a permitting matter, although we do have the authority um, and occasionally, very rarely, will we have a, a sua sponte um, where we will uh, review an enforcement action on our own. Um, but the most important is actually at the bottom that any party can be self-represented uh, and there's no need for counsel and no filing fees. And that really gets to the heart of some of the board's, you know, it's it's really sort of reason for existence is to allow for public participation and allow anyone who would like to challenge a matter um, to appear before us. So the objectives, we sort of touched on some of these in terms of um, why the board was created, but fairness and efficiency um, while serving the agency's mission, of course, to protect public health and the environment, to advance environmental justice, respect tribal sovereignty, et cetera. Um, ensuring consistency, is something that's very important, you know, in in the permitting context as well as in the enforcement context. But you have sometimes regional offices that are making decisions and wanting to uh, make sure that the law is being applied the same way and consistently across the country. Um, and certainly, as Diane had mentioned, um, sharing our environmental adjudication expertise um, internationally and domestically. But we we do have a lot of um, engagement from international audiences. A lot of times when there's um, a constitutional law country who might be setting up an environmental specific, environment specific adjudicatory body, um, we do tend to, um, when asked and when able to provide assistance and provide training. So this slide is um, relatively self-explanatory. I won't read it, lots of words, but um, I will draw your attention to the last bullet um, which in the context of environmental justice, really one of the board's main purposes in being created, as I mentioned just last slide, was to level the playing field, essentially, for people to be able to um, access the proceedings, to participate without needing to file fees, to have counsel, um, to just be able to to say what they need to say and, and hopefully be able to um, uh, mount their claims. Um, and that is something that we take very seriously. Um, we have liberal, fairly liberal uh, pleading requirements 
And we have case law on that, that when someone is before the board uh, in a pro se capacity, that we will um, construe their arguments um, to the best of our ability. Um, I don't have the, the exact case law in front of me, but there is case law that that is relevant to that point. And then these are sort of the principles that guide EAB adjudication. Um, those are, again, fairly self-explanatory. Um, one thing that I did want to note at the bottom is that um, we do not ever engage in ex parte, ex parte excuse me, or one-sided communications um, about any case with any party to an appeal. Um, one thing that I will say is that if you are involved in a matter that comes to the board and then you choose to engage in ADR, that is completely separate. The case is stayed. And then in that context, in the ADR context only, um, we may have conversations with one party or another, but that's in the context of a negotiation um, where folks are perhaps seeking advice on how to proceed or something of that nature, but never in the litigation context will there be ex parte communications. And if for some reason uh, something happens that's outside of our control, then we will actually file a notice and include it on the public docket. So transparency um, and making sure that everybody knows that even though we are from the agency, um, we are not, uh, we are maintaining independence and impartiality at all times. So, um, Again, some of the benefits here of adjudication, um, you do have specialized administrative judges who are gonna be able to provide their expertise um, in what are typically very complex matters. Um, again, increasing efficiency, um, increasing consistency of decisions, um, and then also allowing for both a permit issuer in that context to address any problems that might exist in a draft permit. Um, before it goes final, and then also to serve as um, sort of an aid to uh, federal court appeals for EAB decisions. Um, typically, they're very complex, so we want to help the make sure that when we're writing a decision that our analysis is clear, that we can, and this is for everyone really, for judges and for the public alike and everyone in between, that we are writing in a way that's clear, that elucidates complex concepts in a very uh, straightforward manner. And we find that that can also be um, helpful when a case, if a case goes to federal court for review. So this is, um, these next couple slides, I'm looking at the time and I don't wanna spend too much time on these. This is just about the adjudication process. Diane had mentioned that um, there might be some NPDES practitioners in the room. And so I made the choice to include in this uh, portion of the presentation some more permit specific information. Um, and I know that uh, Mike and Fred will probably get into this a little bit more. So just noting that it's here um, and that, you know, this kind of goes through um, how a proceeding would go forth at the board. Um, the standard of review. Just quickly, um, the standard of review for permit appeals is clear error. So there has to be a clear, a clearly erroneous finding of fact or conclusion of law or an abuse of discretion. So that's a, a fairly high bar. 
Um, and Mike, I know, is going to talk about deference to the permit issuer on technical questions, but that is definitely something that comes up quite a bit. Um, so I'll I'll let him handle that, but just wanted to flag that for you. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to cover here in terms of the petitioner's burdens, I think Mike and Fred will cover some of this as well. Um, but there are, in the permitting context, there are threshold procedural requirements. Um, the petition for review of a permit decision needs to be filed um, within 30 days. Uh, you need to demonstrate that you participated in the proceedings below. If you did not, you can still participate, but only to the extent that a draft permit condition has changed from draft to final. Um, and so that's a little bit of a, a, a narrower ability to participate if you didn't file comments on the draft permit uh, or attend a hearing or do anything related to the development of the draft permit. Um, preserving issues and uh, Naming them specifically, I'm just going to say that. I think that Fred and Mike will probably cover that more um, in their presentations. I'm going to skip through this as well. And then, so appeals from EAB decisions. Where does it go if you or your client doesn't like what has happened? Um, first, a note on finality. In the permitting context, a permit is not final until the regional administrator uh, has issued that permit. So that's the final agency action um, that would allow you to appeal to a federal court. Um, again, non-agency parties that are dissatisfied can go to a federal court and um, which court will depend on what statute you're operating under. Um, so that's why we say uh, sometimes it's the court of appeals, sometimes it's a district court. And then this is just a graphic that shows uh, how frequently um, cases that have gone to federal court have either had no further appeal, settled, one on appeal, and then that 1% is where the board is reversed. Um, just a few notes on the EAB ADR program. I mentioned previously that uh, the board will offer ADR as a service, it is voluntary and it is confidential. So it's by voluntary, I mean that we don't go forward unless all of the parties agree. Um, if that happens and all the party agrees, then the three judge panel that's assigned for litigation and the, settle, the attorney that is assigned to help them will issue a stay order typically for 60 days. And then that fourth judge will become the ADR judge. There will be a senior counsel who will also serve as settlement counsel, and they work to provide the parties with an early neutral evaluation. So it's a little bit different than what you might have experienced um, in mediation in any context, um, whether it's ordered by a federal court or otherwise, in that we are wearing two hats. We are serving as mediators most of the time, but we are at when we convene all of the parties, the ADR judge is going to give an early neutral evaluation, which is basically uh, his or her um, sense of whether or not an issue would succeed before the board and whether, you know, the chances, relatively speaking, of whether or not something um, may or may not, uh, may or may not be uh, 
something the board would grant review on or deny review as the case may be. So the benefits of ADR, uh, certainly it's faster resolution. Um, the parties definitely have an opportunity to be more creative and create more satisfying resolution. Um, in the context of a permit appeal, the board can grant review, it can deny review. If it grants review, the permit is gonna go back to the permit issuer. Um, there's very little that we can do because we are um, our jurisdiction is limited to what the regulations say. So in ADR, we sort of are holding the process, we're holding the container for the parties to come together. And then you have much more opportunity and ability to craft mutually agreeable resolutions that um, everybody uh, hopefully will find acceptable. Um, certainly you're not gonna get everything that you might want, but what you do get is finality, you get certainty, and hopefully broader support for um, the outcomes in that case. So these are just some ADR highlights. I'm gonna skip over those in, in the interest of time. Um, and the last couple of slides that I have are just practice tips. Um, and these might be things that Fred and Mike can expand upon. Um, one thing that I did wanna highlight from here is that um, in terms of briefs, and supporting them with specific citations. Um, that's very important. Um, we are making our decisions on the administrative record. So to the extent that you can support the arguments that you're making with record materials, that's very helpful for us and helpful for you as well. Um, and then the last thing that I'll cover is just some practice tips for oral argument. Um, to prioritize your arguments for sure. The judges sit in three judge panels and they will be ready to ask you questions. Um, my role as counsel is to prepare them for argument and they always take it very seriously. Um, you should assume that they have read the briefs, not only that, but that they are very familiar with the record. Um, just from past experience, it's incredibly helpful if you kind of have a sense of where things are in the record because they will as well. So I will leave the rest to Fred and Mike. Um, there's one more slide I'm not going to really talk about, but it's just lists all of the uh, places where you can find um, board materials um, that are publicly available, which is pretty much all of them. So thanks all very much. And I'd be happy to answer questions uh, when the time is right. Thank you, Susan, that was really helpful. And now we're going to hear from Mike. Um, and also you can put your questions in the Q&A. I have a few questions as well. Um, and we're gonna have a little discussion after the presentations. Turn it over to Mike, thanks very much. Great, thanks, Diane. Um, so I just shared my screen, are folks seeing that? Great. Okay, so yeah, my name is Mike Knapp, staff attorney with uh, EPA Region 1. Um, I don't have a, a complex PowerPoint here, mostly just uh, a roadmap for what I'm going to be talking about. Um, let's try to advance my slide here. There we go. Okay, um, so what I thought would be helpful is if I could just kind of provide some perspective for for what it's like as a regional attorney, uh, you know, the permit issuer when we receive a permit appeal and and what 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 we go through. And first, just kind of a a basic background um, 
uh, perspective. So in EPA Region 1, we're a bit unique as compared to other EPA regions in that we issue the Clean Water Act NPDES permits for both Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Um, I believe the only other state right now that does where that's the case is New Mexico or Region 6 issues issues those NPDES permits. Um, so you know we have a fair amount of work on, on the NPDES end compared to every other region. And, and as Susan mentioned, um, as in the EPA permit issuer, those appeals go directly up to the EAB as opposed to um, states that have their own NPDES program typically have their, their state um, appeal process. And so that's why as Region 1 attorneys, that work on water matters, we we get a nice uh, EAV practice. Um, so what happens when the region receives notice of an appeal? Um, the, the first thing we do, uh, of, of course, is we read it and evaluate the merits. And, and I say that because really what it means is we, we look and we say, okay, did we mess up? Um, you know, the region, we're, we're very proud of our permit program. Having issued permits for two states, we feel like we write very technically defensible permits. And we also, you know, are proud and we feel like um, in this kind of unique position, we we we're, we often find ourselves kind of at the, the front end of uh, edge of the, the MPDS program and advancing certain concepts there. So we're very proud of our, our program, but these are complex permits. Um, we write them for two states. We write a lot of them. We're also, as folks who practice in the area might know, we have a backlog of administratively continued permits that we're trying to chip away at. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, urgency and attention to that. And so, you know, all those things combined, we realize that we can make mistakes. And so we're very open to that possibility. And if we see that in an appeal, we, we want to, you know, fix that uh, as efficiently as possible and not spin our wheels through uh, an EAB, um, you know, full proceeding. So um, we that that's that's the first thing we look at, um, and then and and if we do recognize that, and I'll get to settlement in a little bit, but but we're gonna you know engage those conversations as soon as possible. Assuming um, you know we're, we we review the petition, we feel like we're probably moving forward to you know fully defending the permit, which is usually the case. Um, we have to turn our attention to the administrative record pretty quickly, so we get thirty days to respond. Um, upon notice of, of uh, the, the petition. Um, and that's at 40 CFR 124.19. Um, and not only do we have to respond, provide our response brief, but we also have to provide a certified administrative record index. Um, so as Susan mentioned, the, the, the record for review of an MPDS permit is the administrative record. And so this is a crucial document for the region um, that we, you know, need to make sure um, that we get right and and have a, a a thorough and comprehensive administrative record index with our with our filing. And so we work with our permit writers in the water division um, to to develop that document and and make sure it's it's completely comprehensive. And that's a it's it's frankly a pretty tedious and burdensome exercise, but it's a really important one. And you know, just to Think it's you know that's obviously a unique uh, task for us as the permit issuers as opposed to petitioners. So yeah, you know that's that's a that's a big lift for us once we get this petition. We also early on um, coordinate with the Office of General Counsel in EPA headquarters. Um, you know Susan mentioned that the board part of their goal is to ensure consistency across the agency, and we we certainly see that. And so we we early on engage OGC to make sure that we're consistent with their view on on, on provisions and and they support the region's perspective or positions and and 
frankly, the board um, at argument, in my experience, will usually ask us, you know, have you coordinated with OGC? Are they do they agree with your positions here? So, you know, we we need to make sure we've we've checked that box. Um, we also then one of the one of the first documents we'll put out after we get an appeal is the notice of stayed permit conditions. So Suzanne mentioned this briefly, but I'll just get into it a little bit because you know it's it's a nuanced area that I think is important for um, petitioners, particularly if you're representing permittees. Um, so under the regs at one twenty four sixteen, um, as soon as possible is is this is the time frame. Um, the region has to notify the permittee. Any other interested parties, obviously in a, a petitioner, if you're not the permittee, of the uncontested and severable conditions. And those are the conditions that will go into effect within 30 days of us providing that notice. Um, so an uncontested condition is, is I think, probably pretty obvious. Um, severable means that that uncontested condition does not require compliance of one of the contested conditions in order to to be met. So it's you know you can completely you know move forward without it having some reliance on a contested condition. Um, so we'll identify those uncontested and several conditions in a letter, and then those will go into effect within thirty days. And that's 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 important for permittees. We occasionally see a permittee who will think, well, we've appealed the permit. You know the whole thing stayed, and, and until our petition is our appeal is you know fully, fully litigated, and that's not the case. Um, it's only those contested conditions, and so you'll be expected to comply with all other uh, provisions of the new permit um, within 30 days. Um, another kind of nuance to that 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 provision is any of the stayed contested conditions. If they correspond, is is the regulatory word, if they correspond to provision in your old permit, you have to comply with that old corresponding condition. So for example, say you appeal an aluminum limit and your old permit also had an aluminum limit, you have to comply with that aluminum limit in your old permit because it's a corresponding permit provision. Um, you don't just you know all of a sudden have a period of time where you have no aluminum limit. Um, so those are kind of some some nuances of 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 uh, just the the appeal and state conditions. That I think are important to to pay attention to. Okay, so so we've gone through kind of those initial uh, steps. Right around then is where we'd start to explore or have conversations on settlement if that seems like that's a possibility. And and frankly, we usually get outreach directly from the petitioner pretty early on. Um, if they think that's a possibility or are interested in exploring it, um, and you know, when we have you know have a petitioner um, expressing an interest in having those discussions, in my experience, we almost always will will meet and have those those talks. Um, you know, EPA is obviously interested in working as efficiently as possible. So if there seems like there's there's ground there, we're going to have those discussions. Um, and there's really kind of two ways. At least in my experience, I've seen these go. So first is kind of in, an informal settlement. Um, uh, th this is really, I think, in the case where EPA sees a petition and we realize that there's there's a lot of merit to the petition, and and we you know we think we need to correct a mistake that we made in in the final permit. Um, we want to do that as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible, without spinning our wheels. Um, and so, ideally, we can have a talk with the petitioner, agree on the way to, to correct whatever mistake was made, 
um, and then you know the petitioner will file a a, a motion for the board to uh, to have their appeal dismissed. Um, and and it actually does have to be a motion, and then the board will you know can act on it. Um, this, but this is um, just to give an example. I went through this a couple of years ago on, on a permit where between the draft and the final permit, the agency, the region, um, we we shifted um, for one particular parameter, we shifted from a mass-based limit to a concentration-based limit at the request of the permittee. The permit issuer or the permit writers didn't appreciate a certain nuance that the petitioner brought to us after the final permit was out. And once they brought it to us, we realized that we kind of overlooked, um, you know, one of the technical implications of that change, and, and we agreed that it needed to be fixed, and so we just agreed to do that. Um, and 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 the petitioner then, you know, motioned to to have that appeal um, uh, dismissed. We can also go the more formal route, as Susan mentioned. The board has a, an alternative dispute resolution process. I just went through that uh, recently, just a few months ago, um, and it was a really positive experience. We were able to reach a settlement. Um, and I'll just say two two kind of points to um, you know highlight why I thought it was a useful process. One, and and this is probably familiar to anyone who's gone through ADR generally, but just getting all the parties, and in this case, the state that this was issued in was also an important party. All the parties in the room for a full day or two, you know, tunnel vision concentrated on the issue, um, really was. Uh, very useful and effective to just kind of advance advance the issue and get everyone motivated, acting in good faith to resolve this. Um, I, I I thought that just just that kind of basic thing, but that was that was very helpful. Also, the early neutral evaluation that Susan mentioned. So the the EAB judge who wouldn't be on the three judge panel serves as the the EAB judge kind of facilitator of the of the ADR and provides. Um, he or she provides a, an early neutral evaluation of the strengths and weaknesses of your case. And I felt like that brought a real level of kind of uh, realism and pragmatism to the discussions after those evaluations were, were provided to, to the parties. Um, and, you know, having it come from an EAB judge, um, you know, lends a lot of credence and, and merit to those those views. And in this case, I think it, it, it shaped uh, you know the positions of all parties moving forward and helped us uh, reach a resolution that that everyone seemed happy with. So, ADR was a, a, a you know really really nice option to have, and, and having it offered by you know the board you know at no added cost to any parties as well. You know it's just it's it's a great resource. Um, and then just a last note there on on with I have on timing and withdrawal. So under our regs, EPA has up to 30 days after filing our response brief to unilaterally withdraw any provisions of, of, the, of the permit, any contested provisions. Um, so ideally, and once we once oral argument happens, we cannot unilaterally withdraw any provisions without going to the board and, 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 and getting approval. So ideally, any settlement discussions, we'd like to, those would be, um, we'd commence those before we file our response brief, I think would be the ideal world. Um, and that gives us, you know, we're not, we're not under, um, you know, any kind of timing constraints there with regards to, you know, being able to unilaterally withdraw permit provisions. It also, I think, you know, EPA, one of the benefits of settlement, right, is you, you 
you you save resources, um, you know, and efficiency and in fully litigating. And so if that's the route we're going, we want to go there as, you know, get into that as quickly as possible. Um, and and if we are in that, in in my experience, the what will happen is the parties will jointly move the board to stay, um, you know, the briefing schedule to allow for settlement discussions to take place, either ADR or informal. Um, discussions and and I think the board's usually going to grant that because they have an interest you know in seeing you know resolutions be be met um so I'll move quickly here now just a couple more minutes on on argument um so first just regard to briefs so under the regs you get 14,000 words or or 30 pages um for for your briefs um and the appeals we've been seeing in the region lately tend to be pretty sweeping um, in terms of the number of issues that are being appealed. And I, and I get it. It's, you know, from an issue preservation standpoint, you know, petitioners don't want to leave any issues un, unaddressed and then not be able to bring those up to the first circuit, um, you know, if, if you need to, which is where you go for, for our NPDS permits um, from, from the EAB. Um, but what that means is at least for us in EPA, you know, 30 pages is not a lot, um, especially when you get, you know, the 14,000 words, when you get the, um, you know, background, factual history, procedural history, kind of Clean Water Act basics out there, you're really having to pick and choose, um, you know, where you're going to focus your arguments. And for us in the region, what we end up having to do a lot is is really rely on the record that we've put out there in the fact sheet and the response to comments. And, and hopefully we've done a good job of um, you know, laying out our arguments there and and citing to those. Um, as far as content and and argument goes, you know, obviously, you know, being the permit issuer here, you know, not um, totally in my best interest to advise on how to write great petitions, but but I do think there's a couple point points of emphasis that that benefit the agency as well um, in terms of argument. That the first is, it's really important that your petition addresses and grapples with what the agency said in the response to comments. Um, so if you just repackage your comments on the draft permit and put them in a petition and, and submit those to the EAB, um, the region in, in our response brief is going to call that out and, and cite to the clear board precedent that says you need to um, address and, and attempt to rebut what the agency said in response to your comments. Um, so, you know, that the and 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 we'd expect and hopefully based on prior precedent, we think the board would procedurally say, you know, that you haven't met your, you know, you haven't met your burden of procedurally to 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 appeal that that provision and, and it'd be dismissed on that basis. Um, but I but I say I think that's beneficial for the agency too because you know, we are interested in knowing if we, you know, there's there's nuances, there's mistakes that we could have made. And if we if we don't see our response and our thinking, you know, grappled with and and pushed, you know, our we're we we're not gonna be in a position to really change our you know, our mind or or feel like there's something worth uh, worth addressing there. And so just you know, from an efficiency standpoint. I, I think in addition to just the clear, you know, precedential point, you, you're going to have to meet. Um, I think it, that that's just a, a crucial point. Um, another argument um, aspect I, I wanted to call out is we frequently see petitioners use a line of argument where they 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 point to another permit issuer 
and say, you know, how they handle a spe specific parameter or provision of a permit and say, look, they do it differently. So say, you know, look, the state of Virginia issues their aluminum limits in X format, but region one is doing it in Y format. Therefore, you know, region one must be, you know, clear error for, for doing it that way. And the board has clear precedent saying that that's, you know, generally not a persuasive line of argument unless you have some unique basis for, you know, being able to show that's truly an apples and apples type comparison. Um, but the fact of the matter is under these clean water experiments, they're very complex. There's multiple ways that you can handle a lot of these parameters and issue these permits. And the fact that region one does it a little bit differently than another state or another region um, is not itself, um, you know, clear error. You need to, you need to do more than that. Um, so, you know, I, I get why that type of argument is um, attractive. That's what we do as attorneys, right? We kind of compare similar situations, um, but, but that's, that's not one that I think is going to be persuasive for you as, as counsel for a petitioner. Um, Susan mentioned, you know, some of the deference on, on technical matters, and that's certainly something we as the region are going to call out in our, our response brief. Um, you know, it's it's not oftentimes these technical matters come down to differences of opinion. I, I in my in my experience, and it's not enough for you as the petitioner to just establish a difference of an opinion on a technical matter. You need to go further and show that there was, you know, error, clear error. There was a mistake made by EPA, not that you and your technical expert were able to, you know, come to some different approach than, than the region did. Um, it has to be, you came to the different and, you know, correct one and the regions was wrong. Um, and, and we see that oftentimes where it just kind of ends up coming down to difference of opinion and, and, and that's typically um, not going to be enough. Um, real quick, I'll wrap up oral argument. I will say, as Susan said, the record, the, you want to know your record as well as possible. The board's going to know the record better than you. I can almost guarantee it. It's incredible how well-versed these judges are in the record. So you you do want to come in as well, you know, as prepared as you can be with citations to the record, you know, at your fingertips or, you know, in your cheat sheet up there. Um, they are going to get into the weeds and the nuance. You can't expect to, to, to kind of dwell on a level of um, superficiality in your argument. Um, It'll be a hot bench. In my experience, the board will give you a minute or two to make your points, and then they are gonna they're gonna launch into your questions. So you should be prepared for that. The last thing, and I'll stop and give Fred a point here. Um, you know, I when we when we work with petitioners, I'll often hear um, you know that the EAB is a really friendly kind of home field advantage for the region, and I I, I get why petitioners might feel that way. You know, we certainly do get deference on those technical matters. Um, but I and just, you know, maybe a personal point here, the, the deference we enjoy at the EAB, I think, is very similar to the deference that we will enjoy up at the First Circuit and, you know, ha, where, where you see it in the in the federal courts. And we also get incredible amount of scrutiny from the board on procedural matters, particularly with the guarantees to fair notice arguments on, on the draft permit. If you look at the board's docket right now, or decisions, the last three out of the last four decisions, the board's remanded permits back to regions for not providing sufficient notice um, in the draft permit on on um, on issues. So the board is certainly willing to to remand permits back to regions, especially if we haven't checked checked those procedural boxes. Um, so with that, I'll stop and turn it over to Fred. 
Thanks, Mike. That was really helpful. Um, uh, welcome, Fred, and look forward to your comments. Okay, and I will uh, share my screen and <clears throat> see if I can start from the beginning. Okay, so um, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the perspective of practicing before the board for a regulated party. Um, it's it's usually been in the context, although not exclusively, in the context of MPDS permits. Um, this this used to be beyond Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Mexico. Uh, we've had permits in Idaho, Texas, other states where those states now are MPDS authorized, so the their permit appeals are going through a state process. But uh, for many years, they went through the EAB. Um, and uh, so in terms of key points, and, and a lot of what I'll say um, is just building on what Mike said already, um, because uh, there, and, and uh, what Susan said, because uh, there's, there's some key aspects of uh, being before the AB that I think we all agree on. Um, it, it, is a, uh, it is not an easy uh, process for regulated parties. Uh, that's clearly true. Um, but I think that it's important to start with that it's only a piece of an overall process. Um, the process of getting a permit and getting a permit that is acceptable to the regulated party um, is, is a long one. And going for the EAB can be part of it, but it's only part of it. So um, we what we've tried to do often with our clients is to say, let's start before you even file your permit application. What do you want this permit to look like at the end? What information do we need to present in order to get there, or at least in order to formulate the arguments uh, that'll help us get to an acceptable permit? That may mean thinking through when you're filling out the permit application, what information do you need to gather uh, that you might not, you know, sort of beyond the minimum uh, that'll help show the agency what you think the right uh, decisions are, whether it's not to have a limit, whether it's to have a limit, but a certain type of limit or a certain level of the limit. Do we need monitoring requirements on these pollutants and not those pollutants? Think through all those issues beforehand in terms of, okay, let's, let's try to provide the, the, let's tell our story to the agency. Let's try to make sure that our permit application starts by telling the story to the agency. And there may need to be meetings with the agency to talk through key issues in the permit application. Um, we, we tend to, sh you know, sometimes you'll send in a permit application and you just don't hear about it for a while. Well, generally we've found that it's more useful and not only dealing with EPA, but also dealing with state agencies to interact with the agency. Uh, to tell the story, even when you file the application in some cases, particularly if if there's something unusual about the permit or there are things you've been doing that you want them to know about. Um, so, so that's one thing to think about going forward is start with your permit application and making sure that you've submitted all the information you think is needed and interact with the agency to make sure that if there is other information that they think they need, um, that uh, you hear about it. Uh, one of the key issues coming up lately um, through memos EPA has sent out both to regions and states is PFAS. And uh, is there information about PFAS 
that might be needed in your permit application. So you can have a productive dialogue with EPA about that, particularly because they are moving toward, and some region one permits already have, monitoring requirements for PFAS and limits and BMPs are likely coming. So one of the issues to think about is you're doing your permit application. Um, the next point, and this, this echoes what Mike was saying, um, and I can't emphasize it enough, is when you are doing your draft, your comments on the draft permit, um, we definitely err on the side of being inclusive in terms of think about all the issues you have with this permit and put them all in the comments. Um, you will probably drop some of those issues out later because 30 pages, when you get to the EAB, doesn't allow you to really pay attention to a lot of issues. So you have to understand you're probably not going to bring all these issues to the table before the EAB, but in, in the permitting process, you want to make sure to raise all your issues and engage with the agency. There are a lot of those smaller issues that you want to raise and try to get corrected and have them never get to the point where you have to appeal them. Um, and our experience is a lot of those can be addressed but you got to lay them out in the comments. You have to put them in there and then engage with the agency to say, all right, how can we talk through these issues and get a lot of the easier ones off the table and get those resolved? Um, as Mike said, and this really goes sort of both ways is the uh, sort of, the question is what are the leanings of the EAB? And there's no question that they do defer to EPA. Um, uh, especially on technical issues, scientific issues, uh, they are very picky on process. And that's sort of, that, that works both ways. Because on the one hand, they will be very picky about saying to uh, a petitioner who's appealing a permit, well, did you raise that issue in your comments? And secondly, um, are you bringing forward, are you just bringing forward the same issue you raised in your comments or as Mike said, are you explaining why the response to the comments was inadequate? And they will go through detail by detail to make sure that you have A, raised the issues in your comments, and then when you got a response, you have to explain why the response was inadequate. So on that side, they're very picky in a way that makes a tough burden on the permittee. At the same time, the as Mike said, the situations where we've seen them overturn the agency are generally where it's not about the substance. It's the agency basically sprung something on you in the final permit that you really didn't have a chance to comment on it at all. Um, and it's not an easy burden to, to, you know, to hit, but those are ones where sort of as sort of like a court, they can understand the process issues and they can, if they think the agency hasn't followed the proper process, then they are more amenable to overturning the agency decision. So that's something to think about, particularly, as I said, as you move from step to step here, from your permit application to the comments on the draft permit to getting before the EAB, you narrow the issues. You'll even narrow them farther when you get to the First Circuit if you go there. But you can't pay attention to a lot of issues in 30 pages. So you really have to try to decide which are the ones that are A, most important to the client, and B, most likely to get you a favorable decision from the EAB. 
they because if you spend three pages on an issue, oh, it's really hard to win those. It's really hard to provide a convincing argument about why the board ought to overturn the agency in three pages. Ten pages, much more, much more likely. And you can really pay enough attention to an issue to really give you a fighting chance in front of the board. So, as I said, there is the possibility of appeal to the First Circuit on an MPS permit. Um, and, you know, people don't always think about the fact that the, the circuit's there. Um, you can go to the First Circuit. Um, interestingly, you know, one of the issues we've talked about before was um, various ADR methods. And we've even seen that not only with the board, but we've also seen that at the circuit where we took a case up and the circuit referred us to ADR. So that opportunity is, exists there as well in appropriate situations. Another aspect of practicing in front of the circuit, and it's pretty rare, but we did do this one time and, and got it, is that you know there's the automatic stay in front of the EAB, right? But there's also a possibility of requesting a stay from the First Circuit if there's some reason why the appealed provision should be stayed. And that's not easy. We had one where new facts had arisen um, really very recently, which we thought merited the agency reevaluating the permit conditions. And the circuit actually agreed with us on that and issued a stay because of those new facts. So something to think about, as I said, it, that won't happen often, but in some situations, that's something to pursue. As Mike said, you know, whether it's at the circuit or in front of the EAB, we think, and this really goes back to the beginning of the process. Excuse me, bit of a cold. Um, always being open to other ways to resolve the dispute. Um, however far along you've gotten in this process, there are a number of different ways to resolve the dispute. And remember, the, the bottom line for a permittee is, what's my permit going to look like? Um, are there ways to get either the, the permit condition I want or a permit condition that is closer to what I want um, through various other ways of resolving the dispute? So um, I, I agree with what we said before in terms of, you know, you don't have to think, well, I'm going down this pathway and there's no turning back. Um, there are ways, and as Mike said, the agency has been open in some situations to uh, ways to do that and ways to get some issues settled that, so the parties can move forward. And, and that's something we always want to be open to. Um, <clears throat> the, the final uh, point I wanted to mention um, and, and this goes back again to a point Mike made is we often find that um, clients will think, well, I'm appealing the permit. So like, this, that means this permit doesn't, I don't have to comply with the conditions in this permit. Or they're confused about, well, what conditions do I have to comply with and which ones don't I? Um, the agency does send that letter that states the conditions they believe are stayed um, it's important to walk that through with the client and say, all right, let's talk this through to make sure we know these are the things in the permit that you have to meet while the appeal is going on. These are the conditions we're appealing 
that you don't have to meet, but you may have to meet a condition in the previous permit on those issues. So really important to keep track of that. Uh, so the client and sometimes the contractors are very clear about here are all the currently applicable requirements during the process of appeal that we know we're gonna have to meet and we're gonna be held to compliance with. Sometimes it's confusing because sometimes these two provisions might interrelate and you really need to work that through, including with the agency. So it's crystal clear to the client what conditions they are operating under during the time period the appeal is going on. So uh, those, are, uh, those are my key points. Um, and, uh, and again, um, you know, it's, uh, it can be a frustrating process for everybody concerned, uh, practicing in front of the EAB. Um, we just, I want to, I want to just go back to my original point, which is it's part of an overall process of permitting. And with clients, we need to think about, you know, the goal is a permit that, um, that meet certain conditions for the client. They, we need to think about what those are and how we can get there or as close as possible to there, working with the agency. And, uh, and the EAB process is a tool, is one way of addressing some of, some of those issues, not all of them, um, and particularly the ones that are most important, um, and uh, working through that process to get to the end of the, to, to get to the end, which is a final permit that we're able to comply with. Thanks. Thanks, Fred. So um, we have a few minutes for questions and I have a couple that I wanted to, I've been dying to ask all three of you. And it relates to some of the current topics sort of in the environmental law right now, one of them being WOTUS, uh, um, including the sort of evolving definition of WOTUS as it might apply um, to NPDS permits um, how does the EAB and, and also thinking about the Maui case with the, you know, groundwater discharges, how does the EAB handle sort of changes in law that might impact arguments sort of midstream, so to speak? Um, because, you know, at least I've seen sort of theoretically in, in our region, you know, interpretations about whether there's, you know, whether that's a discharge to groundwater that could have an impact on surface water now that there's the Maui decision. I mean, the, the region had a particular view, I think pre-Maui may or may not have changed. And the same thing with WOTUS about is is that, you know, we, we have in Massachusetts anyway, man-made man -made water bodies. Is that really a water of the U.S. or is it not? Um, what, what, what can you all three offer on to these sort of bigger legal issues that aren't necessarily technical issues, although I guess are technical to some extent? I'd be curious as to your thoughts on those things. Um, I can say really quickly from the board's perspective that we um, certainly follow all of these um, developments as they arise. Um, you know, the Maui case is a great example. We were all following that. Um, there have been instances in the past where things have changed midstream in a permit appeal. And then we sort of have to figure out, okay, how, how would this impact? But typically, um, the laws that were in effect when the permit 
was issued is what we will decide the permit under. So that is that is typically a first, you know, that, that's typically the, the first thing. Um, that being said, you know, it, it tends to be case specific. So I don't want to get too far ahead of, of myself or of the institution, but um, that typically is is where we start. And then, you know, from there, if there's something else going on or, you know, we've had cases, um, enforcement cases that have looked at WOTUS and sort of what what was going on in the Supreme Court and how to interpret it. I mean, some of those issues will be fact specific, you know, situation specific, but um, I, I will leave it there for now and then let Fred and Mike weigh in. Um, but just to start from there. <laughs> Mike, you want to lay it out from EPA and then I can Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I, I've not had the situation where the laws like dramatically changed in the midst of a permit appeal. But what Susan says sounds right to me. Um, I will say on on kind of WOTUS Maui. So so WOTUS, you know, I, I, I'm an NPDS attorney. I'm not a 404 attorney. The, those we don't tend to get WOTUS issues as much in the NPDS program. Um, Maui certainly is 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 coming up more often. Um, but, you know, for example, I, I worked on a permit in New Hampshire about a year ago, and, and we got Mau comments on, on Maui, and we addressed those, and, we, you know, we kind of laid out our understanding of, you know, where the agency's position was, and we didn't get an appeal there. But, I mean, I think, you know, that it, it would be like any other legal issue, I guess, where as long as, you know, our response to the comments was, you know, thoroughly explained our position and defensible and you know the board would would review that um you know based on based on the record in front of us um so yeah i'll leave it there yeah my um i would agree with that you know i think on on wotus we're seeing a lot more wotus issues coming up out west um particularly because how the new wotus rules treat ephemeral waters is significant and sometimes comes up in permitting or 402 permitting although more in the wetlands context. Um, so I don't I don't expect that to be coming up here a lot in Massachusetts. Um, in terms of Maui, it's a really interesting issue because it's not really a it's not really in the regulations right now. Um, you know, there's a Supreme Court case that says certain types of situations need an MPDS permit. It's tending to be adjudicated in individual cases. We're trying to monitor the cases and see sort of how they come out and what the facts are. Um, you know, one of the issues, and, and I think these issues will likely come before the board at some point in terms of somebody may say, well, that needs a permit. Um, and if the agency says, no, I can see that being appealed. Conversely, there could be cases where the agency feels a permit is needed for, you know, uh, release to groundwater that goes to surface water and the permittee might disagree. Um, and then that could be on appeal to the EAB. Right now, it's all sort of based on applying the rules in the Maui County decision. Um, I know that EPA headquarters is planning, is working on some guidance uh, on these issues, which we hope to see sometime soon. Um, although I think it's less going to be on the issue of uh, when is the permit required, because the Maui County case like lays out pretty clearly what the factors are. Um, they need to be applied to specific cases, but there are a lot of issues that we've asked EPA headquarters about in terms of, like, if it's decided you need a permit for, say, leakage from a 
ash pond or whatever. Um, all right, how do I apply for that permit? Like, what does the application look like? Where am I supposed to monitor? Um, when the agency makes a decision on that permit, like where's the compliance point? Is there a mixing zone? All sorts of issues about this sort of different kind of discharge and how it's going to get permitted that we're going to have to work through with EPA and with the states um, that have to apply this as well. So there are some really unresolved issues out there, and it's very possible in my mind some of them will go before the board at some point. Um, we just haven't really, we haven't seen that yet, but I can see it happening. Thanks. That's very helpful. And um, I, I think we have time for one more, so I'm going to throw it out there. What, how does the EAB deal procedurally with a case where the permittee maybe files the petition, but there clearly were the public, uh, public interest, maybe environmental groups that filed comments or individual members of the public. Is that, how do they, can they get intervener status or is it really just an amici? What, you know, or do they have to file their own petition? Cause they don't want to be, you know, once the party starts, they don't want to be left out of the party is the way it seems to me. How does that procedurally work? Um, you're absolutely right. People don't want to be left out of the party. <laughs> so um, typically, you know, a, a lot of times if you have, um, you know, a facility that's being permitted and under the Clean Water Act, right, it's supposedly every five years that they're getting an NPDES permit. And oftentimes we'll see kind of people who are engaged, whether it's community members, NGOs, um, you know, it could be a neighboring state, it could be a neighboring town, it could be any of those things, and they will they will file their own petitions typically, or sometimes they'll band together and have what you know if their issues are the same, um, they might combine forces and and share costs if they're going to um, hire counsel. But everybody comes in together. Now, I I mentioned that we will um, have. Uh, amicus briefs will receive those as well. Um, you know, sort of if somebody has a particular issue that they want to highlight for us, but, um, you know, in terms of, uh, of making sure that they have an opportunity to be, you know, to fully air whatever it is that they want to, then everybody sort of operates under the same procedural rules, um, in the permitting context under part 124, 124.19, I think, as Mike mentioned that you have 30 days, um, from when the final permit is issued, and then you can submit your own petition for review. And typically, um, people will tend to do that. You know, we we oftentimes have multi-party. Um, you know, where you have a permittee, you have EPA, and then you have a, a potentially host of other folks that that have things they want to raise. But there's no way to join if you miss the 30-day petition. No formal status other than an amici, right? You have to petition to be really have a party status. There's not an intervener motion to intervene after the fact type of process. No, I would need to I would need to go back. I think in the past we've changed our procedural rules a few times. <laughs> and so before 2013, they were very uh it was kind of all in the case law. And then when we went and did the 2013 um, update to the procedural rules, we sort of codified a lot of the things that um, that were previously just done in case law. Um, I do not want to, again, don't want to. Uh, that, that's yeah, okay. I, I can just say, 
that I can make a couple things on that point. Susan, it's my understanding, and I'm just looking at the regs again, that there, there's not a way to intervene. Um, yeah, I don't think so either. And that's, that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that's why, you know, just I, I, I've always kind of theorized, you know, we, we tend to get the appeals on day 30, um, you know, in addition to folks wanting, you know, 30 days to write their brief. But I, I've always kind of theorized that there's some strategic sense to not maybe, you know, filing your appeal and giving other commenters some time to say, oh, well, they're appealing, you know, well, let, let me get in on the party as well. Um, and I think when when we do see multiple appeals, it's where, um, you know, um, say there's the, the permittee and an environmental group where, where, you know, it's clear early on, you know, just by the, the tenor of comments that there's going to be an appeal. I think in those cases, you're more likely to see, you know, maybe the environmental group say, okay, well, there's going to be an appeal. I'm getting mine in there too, because I want, because I want to, you know, a seat at the table. Diane, I just checked really quickly um, to make sure. And so an amicus can file a brief in in most permit appeals, 15, up to 15 days after the response. So you're not a full party, but you can have your views heard. Um, the only exception to that is um, in a prevention of significant deterioration under the Clean Air Act, Title I. You have to do that because it's expedited, and um, that's 21 days after the petition. But so for, you know, if we continue with the Clean Water Act NPDES example, you would be able to file an amicus brief, I guess, up to 45 days. Um, yeah, roughly. 45 days, depending on, on the, on the, uh, case. Sure. Yeah. We, uh, we've certainly had cases where we appealed and an environmental group appealed, um, both on the same permit. Um, and, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the other, so that can certainly happen. Um, the other, uh, aspect of that, and it's not as much at, at the AB stage, but what, one of the things we found is that, um, often there are provisions going into other permits, like if we're representing a community that has a particular type of facility, say a CSO facility, um, we try to be aware of what the agency is putting in permits for other facilities. And sometimes we might want to comment on it um, because like we know they're working on something and once they put it in that permit, it's probably going to go in ours too. So in some cases like that, we've filed comments on that permit. We we haven't necessarily appealed that permit, although we could as a third party, but um, we've filed comments partly to engage the agency on the issue at the earliest opportunity and say, hey, you're starting to put that in permits. We want to talk about it. And so we have filed comments on those permits, even though they're not technically our client's permit. That makes sense. Well, we're over time and um Devin has been recording, so that's that's good. I appreciate all your help on this. I appreciate these uh, really insightful comments. I know folks who have their appeal and EAB matter come up will be searching the BBA web uh, web uh, site for reference materials. So I appreciate it very much. Um, and thanks again. And Devin, is there any concluding remarks? I know we went over a little bit here. Um, I just want to hop on and say thank you so much to our panel for speaking this afternoon. And thank you so much to our audience for joining us. We certainly look forward to seeing you all at future events. Thank you. Thanks, thank everyone. Bye-bye.